Welcome to the Educate US podcast with your host, Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacy Schultz, and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. Folks, I'm especially excited about today. Today, we get to talk about something that Patrice Stacey and I are extremely passionate about assessment. Who better to do that than our guest today, Akil Bello? Akil is a nationally recognized admissions testing education expert with years of experience advocating for equitable access to education. He's also the Senior Director of Advocacy and Advancement for Fair Test, which is the National Center for Fair and Open Testing. Now, before we get to Akil's interview, I want to ask my colleagues their takeaways from the conversation that we had with Akil. Stacey, I'm going to go to you first. What were some of your takeaways from our conversation? I really appreciated all Akil had to share with us, but particularly as he was even talking through why assessments, what's good about assessments. And he was going through a moment of, well, here's why, oh, but then there's this aspect of it. And one of the things that really stuck out to me is if we're doing assessments so that we can get information about you know, students' needs, where they are, how they're progressing. And yet, when we get that information is far beyond um, usable, so to speak, right? Like oftentimes they're doing testing in the spring around for that grade, and then they're getting results in the fall. And those results aren't really uh, detailed. They're not giving you a lot of information, Um and they're just saying, you know, against their peers at that time and date, this is how they, um, this is how, where they were, so to speak. And so how we can make assessments more formative and informing for for our educators and also for parents, I think it's something we really should be striving for. Um, additionally, you know, the ideas around the college board, right? And the, how, you know, I mean, that was a pretty straightforward, these are not helpful. <laughs> the way we're using them, what they're testing, they're sort of vague. Uh, and so, and I know during COVID, right, they took a pause on that. Is that right? We yeah. did, yeah. Yeah, so I'd be interested to know why, why do they have to bring them back? Patrice, what's sticking out to you? You know, I, I, I appreciated Akil's thoughts so very much. Um, and one of the things that stuck out to me just was it, it pushed me to reflect on my experiences, both as a classroom teacher and also in the work that I used to do with Akil at Bell Curves and the ways that we were able to see movement with adults and young people alike was by getting very detailed test results. Uh, put simply, item analysis. So being able to see, okay, how are folks scoring on one question type versus another versus one answer type versus another. Um, and the more granular we were able to get, the more targeted we were able to get in our instruction and our support of folks looking to perform on these various types of exams, everything from your um, LSAT all the way to, you know, your standardized ELA exam. Um, and when I was in the classroom, same thing. Uh, my self-contained class specifically, we did interim assessments one year 
and we were able to get item analysis. So I was able to see certain students did well when it comes to when it came to main idea. Others did well when it came to detail questions. And what does that mean? And then I was able to bring that data to my students to illuminate to them how they were performing and help them to see, okay, well, when it's the, when when I see these types of words in the question, I know it's a global question, meaning that it's asking me about the entire passage versus if I get a line reference, it's asking me about a detail. And what does that mean about how I break down the answer choices, how I break down my understanding of the text, et cetera. Um, and so just to know that oftentimes, most times with any kind of assessment, most assessments, you're not getting that level of detail. It begs the question as Stacey raised and as he raised, well, what's really the point here? Why are we doing this? For, for what purpose? Is it really to serve people in, in their growth and their learning? Or is it to check a box or to rate a school or some other uh, minor consequential, maybe depending on who you ask, but not directly impacting the learning that's supposed to be taking place um, in our classrooms, in our schools. So um, yeah, I would I would want to push for for just more information, more information. We'll make sure that our assessments are actually informing people in the fullest extent. Yeah, I'll echo the statements you both have talked about. Um, the timing is always what throws me off, especially when a group of students is moving on, being promoted, moving you know on from the school, and the information is still not present. I once had worked with a charter school, and we were looking at. He was taking me through the raw data. And now I, my background was in test preparation for the SAT and ACT and other assessments like that. So I understand raw scoring and scale scoring. But I never thought about that from the standpoint of, you know, with standardized tests in school. And he takes me through this thing where he's showing me all the raw scores from the students. I said, OK, well, according to this, here's your average and things like that. And he looks at me like I've like I've lost my mind. He's like, no. You would never use the raw score. I'm like, well, why wouldn't you? That's the accurate. That's the accurate depiction. And he starts to laugh. He's like, the state has to scale it. Like there has to be a narrative that's formed from this. That's that's usually how this works. And when he pulls up the scale, it completely changes. It doesn't change too much. Like if you obviously your raw score was the was the highest of the, the group, you're still obviously, you know, even on a standard score level, still you know outperforming your peers. But what it does is it basically creates this bump that the state can then use to talk about growth or or a lack thereof. And it was one of those red pill matrix moments where you're like, okay, this is not, I mean, I'm, I sound really naive in retrospect. And this was like almost 10 years ago when I saw this. I understand. He said, that's why it takes so long. Like you would think an assessment given in May should not take until August for reporting. Uh, Stacey, you had a point. you had a point to share before we wrap up. Yeah, I just wanted to speak to not only, you know, are we waiting, right, for the information, so to speak, but we're also, or for the manipulation of the information, but we're also uh, often in many schools, they're taking weeks or sometimes months doing test preparation. And that is unfortunate because really, right, this assessment, as Akil spoke to, is supposed to be a measure of how are students, where are students on the current curriculum? But if you're spending all this time on test prep, like, well, are they really getting a chance to engage with that curriculum and quality instruction? 
Yeah. And the other thing is that, you know, those who can afford to do it can essentially pay their way for their children to get a good score. And adults, same thing. Those who can afford it can pay their way to getting a high LSAT, GMAT, GRE, et cetera. Um, and so then that that begs the question of equity, right? And that was one of the impetuses that I know of um, that drove Akil and his brother to co-found Bell Curves was to level a playing field and bring high quality test preparation services to families who couldn't afford to pay $1,000 a pop or you know, students of color who couldn't, as they were in grad school, preparing for grad school, that is, uh, afford to pay $1,400 to Princeton Review or Kaplan or the like to to prepare. So um, this is the other question I think that comes up for me is um, in addition to that ex extensive amount of time that is spent um, in taking away from instruction is just that ability for folks who have, you know, the, the ability to pay for pay for play, <laughs> to pay for the kind of outcome that they want to see. And, you know, that's that's the part to me that that speaks of educational injustice. All right. When we come back after the break, our conversation with Akil Bellow. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. So it is my esteemed pleasure to welcome our guest today, Akil Bello, who I had the pleasure of working with in the earlier stages of my journey as an educator uh, at a company he co-founded called Bell Curves. Um, Akil is one of the smartest people I know. I don't know if he knows that. He's a supreme expert in the area of assessment and equity and access in education, a father, a husband, and a bunch of other quirky things, which I'll let him tell us. So Akil, please uh, introduce yourself to our guests, please. Good afternoon or whatever time you're listening to these things. <laughs> um, Akil Bello, and I think you did a great job introducing me. I don't know that there's a whole lot to add except for random things, you know. Some people might have said, what is there to say? I currently work as the Senior Director of Advocacy and Advancement at Fairtest. That's the only piece that I think might needed to be added there, but you did a great job in introducing me. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us. It is a pleasure once again. Um, I wanted to just dive right into your take on assessment. So one of the things I think is great about your career is that you've had a very wide span of access to all different types of assessments that young people, older people all in, in standardized assessments, state assessments, right? So you've had your hands in quite a bit of different types of testing that folks have to undergo in the education landscape. So we wanted to just begin with your your view of assessments overall. Like, do they do the jobs that they're meant to do? If they do, which ones do? Which ones don't? Like, what's your what's your overall take on the assessment landscape? Oh, that's a, that's a interesting question. Yes. Um. Let me answer it slight. Let me answer it in a couple of ways. One is there's a huge difference between K-12 accountability assessments and admissions test. Okay. I have far more criticisms of admissions test 
what they measure, what they do, how they're used than I do of K-12 assessments. So let's start with the, the negatives. Well, let's start with the, the big bad, right? Admission sets, I feel like, terrible. They are, and let me say that better. They are used terribly. They are marketed terribly, right? Just think of the very notion of we're going to test you on a narrow swath of math and English, or sorry, of math and reading and maybe grammar, and then get a number and use that number to say we can predict your future, predict your ability to learn further, predict college and career readiness. Like all of these further predictions based on a performance on one day's assessment, it just seems like a very a, a, a insane overreach of the information provided, right? So, so admissions tests have the problem of overreach of what it predicts, right? K-12 accountability assessments are, are different in terms of the state generally has told you what they're going to assess. And then they assess that one year's curriculum in theory, right? So just theoretically, it's a better starting point than admissions tests, right? Admissions is like, we're testing you on stuff from school, like the SAT. We're testing you on stuff you should have learned in school. Like that is such a vague, weird notion that in a non-standardized educational system with a, however many it is, 100,000 high schools or whatever nonsense it is, right? They're going to use one test to measure performance in all these places when we don't have an agreed upon curriculum. That seems fairly farcical. But in K-12, where the state controls the standards and the state, in theory, designs the assessments, I think that gets a little bit better. At least it addresses that one point of aligned standard and assessment, right? Um, so I think state accountability tests are better, right? It's kind, but, you know, to a certain extent, I'm saying that, I don't know, Dying in your sleep is better than being murdered, right? <laughs> kind of is, right? <laughs> so, so, so the problems that I tend to have with assessments aren't so much about should we assess, what are we assessing, but it's it's the use, the interpretation, the overreach the time it takes away from real education, the narrowness of it and how much weight is put on these things more so than is that one question a question we should ask, right? Is that one question on the test in and of itself, in isolation, something I want children to learn? Probably, right? But once you get into all of the other bigger picture stuff, it starts to become increasingly problematic. Thanks for that take there, Akil. So you know, it is testing season as we're recording and parents often weigh, should I opt in or opt out of these K to 12 accountability tests, as you mentioned or called them? What is your advice to parents and how should they be thinking about it? That's a, that's a great question. So I do a lot of work around um, policy. So I'm going to answer as Patrice's friend, <laughs> I'm not answering around policy. And I think as a parent, I'm going to answer. As a parent, I was actually curious about the, the assessment test. Because as a parent, I think it gives me 
what I wanted was a way to know how my child was doing versus other children, right? I want that information. It sounds like good information to have, except as a parent, I was hugely frustrated because they never actually gave me the information I want. I don't want the number. I want the test. I want to see if my child got 50% of the questions wrong, which ones, why? I want to be able to look at the test and sit down with my kid and understand what they did, right? If my kid was sleepy that day and added one plus one and got 11, I'd like to know that, right? None of these tests provide that. So as a parent, the information that, like, the information that would allow me to say, yes, as a parent, you should do this. It's helpful. It's just not there, right? If my child takes a test in May and gets the results in October, how's that useful, Right? Like, and you're not actually giving me the questions or his answers. You're giving me a score, but not understanding. And I, so I want to say, do it. You'll get some context for how your child is performing against other children, statewide, school-wide, nationally, but actionable information that allows you to help that child isn't provided. So why would I waste my time on that test when I could actually just grab a test, a practice test at home, just give it to the kid and look at how they did and have my results like super fast right away. <laughs> right. So as a parent, it's really hard to, to say you're going to get information that is useful to it. There is also the issue of, of society and accountability and do you feel that you want to give the state information they want to allow them to compare schools? I do understand the history of American schools, right? There's a whole long history of schools, of, of schools that serve black and brown students, low-income students being underfunded, under-resourced, you know, given textbooks that are 30 years old, and therefore getting a, a second-class education. It is hard to see that without uniform comparison of those things. Or let me say that better. Is that, okay, so every time I want to, to argue for the test, I end up not, right? It's like, <laughs> do we really have any trouble knowing which schools are not going to do well because they don't have money and resources? <laughs> like, 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 I'm pretty sure we could just look at the funding and tell you which schools are going to underperform. So do we really need to spend a week on a test? Right, so, so at every turn where I try to argue for the test, I can't find a reason that that makes them useful. It's funny because there's a couple of places here that just jump out to me because you just mentioned maybe the most important thing, Akil, about visibility. So the ability to actually have hands on test item analysis, like we talk about this all the time and in terms of that's comparative to obviously other students, the classroom. But when you can when you consider assessments that do arrive at home, you know, curriculum based assessments and then consider what's happening this time of year when we think about state testing. Now, I say this time of year in generalities, obviously, but I'm thinking about the state of New York, right? Like mm -hmm. where um, I work with a lot of you know schools and organizations. How does that all then gel? And I'll tap into you now as parent and policy person. So I'm going to ask you to sort of split the mind for a little bit. But like, how does that all add up when my assessments curriculum based tell me one thing about my daughter, but then when I'm looking at state information, which gives me less visibility, like, how am I drawing a through line or what challenges are there currently and what what potentially leads to um, misunderstandings about what we're trying to learn about our children? One of the, the failures of assessment advocates 
is they've allowed assessments to try to serve all masters. And in doing so, it hasn't served any of them well. If it were simply accountability and state level comparisons, there would be no consequences for students, right? And therefore there would be no need for parents to worry about it on a visible, like as a visible tool for how much, like it just be, hey, fine. This is for the state to compare or understand school functioning, right? That would be one thing. When you start to integrate student level benefits or detriments or whatever it is, now as a parent, I want more information of how this is going to affect my child, right? And to a larger extent, how it's going to affect my school. So I think the the arguments that are used to advocate for testing are contrary to the type of information they're willing to release. So by not releasing individual item analysis for each participant on the test, not releasing item analysis for a classroom, a teacher. Let's say a teacher's class has been ranked as underperforming. The teacher has no way to know this because the scores don't come out until those students have moved on to a different teacher. So it's actually not useful at a student level, right? Because of the pace at which they report these results. So as a parent, how can I take a test, take the results of a test eight months later and say, this is meaningful my, to my child who's either been in school or hasn't been in school, you know, has been in school for some portion of that eight months, but has entirely new teachers. And the item level performance is muddled also by performance versus knowledge, right? Um, one of the things that fascinates me is there is a technical psychometric term called distractor, right? which is just fascinating to me. We literally write questions and three of the four choices, let's say, are, are called distractors. So designed to bait you into picking them when they are incorrect. So when my child picks a distractor because he was distracted, which was the intent of putting the distractor there, you're telling me he doesn't understand. That's a really weird way to try to assess their knowledge. It's not really assessing knowledge, it's assessing your ability to avoid distractions and bait under a high pressure situation. Like that seems contrary to what we're trying to do. So I find, you know, if we, if we made the test entirely free answers and not multiple choice and we removed the distractor element of it, I think they would get better. Right, because now the, the response the student gives is actually the result of their own work and not them going, hey, oh, it's one of these three. They asked me for X plus one. The kid solves for X, finds the value of X and picks X. But because it was time, they overlooked that it asked for X plus one. That kid has full understanding of how to do the math, but got caught by the distractor. Right, and without looking at a question on an item level, how do I understand that? How do I disaggregate by the kid who simply underperformed because of time pressure and because of the selection of distractors from the student who actually had no clue how to do this question? That's a necessary, important distinction. Sitting with that, I want to broaden this back out to college because we talked about that a little bit at the start. 
you recently had spoken about for guidance for families of as this season is where people begin their college tours that they've been in the midst of it and they're making decisions about colleges to attend. What, what advice comes up for you? What are things that people should just keep on their radar when they're making that critical decision about their, the next level for their educational journey? Avoid the noise, like tune out as much of the noise as possible. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of phrases that are used and to, to keep sort of within the, the scope of like assessments, especially, right? Um, whether a college requiring or test or not is meaningful to the quality of the education. I've, I've, I've seen people trying to argue that requiring test or not is somehow indicative of the quality of education provided, right? That's a farce, right? You know, an admission tool is often either a blunt tool for, are you ready, right? It's not a very precise or good one, or it's a simple, it's a hoop to jump through because they have too many applications. So whether it means, it means almost nothing about the quality of education received, right? So you have to sort of avoid all the noise around selection of where do I want to continue my education journey and what am I looking for there? And I think that's a separate conversation from, can I get in? right? Can I get in is one question, right? That's a whole separate question. And that's where those things are going to start to matter, right? But do I want to go there is probably a more important question, right? And not letting the noise determine where you want to go, right? And I think far too many people muddle and combine, can you get in with, do I want to go, right? And then further making it worse is, is that place good, right? interpreting selectivity and those sort of things to mean quality of education. And, and those are problems that I have is that like, if you can't define the, the, the value of attending that institution, the quality of the education you're going to get, then, then do I get in or not? Can I get in or not as a meaningless conversation? Right. So I think families should really start to evaluate what do you want out of college? You know, um, what does that experience look like? What kind of cost can you tolerate? Um, what education do you want? And once you've figured out those things and figure out which colleges meet those things, then you can worry about, will I get in? Right? Because there's really, there's limited transparency around, will you get in? And that transparency only starts to, you know, that, that only can becomes clear once you've applied. You use the word noise. <laughs> which I, I feel like there's plenty of, uh, especially with the uh, advent of social media being such a thing in our lives. But I wanted to uh, pivot us just a little bit to an article you recently shared with me, which actually prompted me to invite you to share space with us today. Um, and it was Wall Street Journal's editorial, uh, the College Board's Secret Apology. So scandalous in its title. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to know if you could talk to our listeners about that whole situation out of Florida, what actually happened with the college board and educators who partner with them and the state and all that jazz. There's so much that's happened in Florida in general, which is why I make the mention of noise, but we're really curious on your take on that particular article. Man, um, the whole situation is is nuts. It's like, I don't know how to say it differently. It, it also reveals a lot of the problems with 
education in America. Um, you know, so to run down the story, if I can see if I can summarize it in 30 seconds, right? College Board, which is a nonprofit organization, quote unquote nonprofit, um, it is unregulated, unelected, un uncontrolled. Well, it is a private entity that has nonprofit tax status, right? That's the best. It's a private corporation with nonprofit nonprofit tax status that owns, creates, and administers the SAT as well as the AP programs, right? So in 2020, when everyone was jumping on the bandwagon of George Floyd and saying, we care about DEI, College Board decided that it was the moment to launch AP African-American studies, which they had been sitting on for almost a decade. They had been like, there's a quote at some point where they said they didn't think that anyone would buy it prior to George Floyd, after George Floyd, they're like, hey, now's the moment we can get in on this. And this is the moment in which the country will want this program. So they went into overdrive, creating this program. Um, they made a big announcement, George Floyd, racial equality, Black Lives Matter, we are going to do Af AP African-American studies. Right? Um, fast forward, they piloted it. 2022, it was rolled out. Um, so I think the announcement was 2020, 2022, they rolled out the pilot in 60 schools. Um, towards the end of 2022, conservative newspapers and stories out of Florida start to become, we don't like this course. All the DeSantis stuff is starting to circle around this course. And there's a lot of noise, right? There's a lot of the quality. Yeah, um, there's a lot of noise that starts to circulate a couple of op-eds and things like that. Come to January 2023, College Board announced they had been piloting it. They're like, hey, we've piloted it. It was a pilot. Now we're going to have some updates on this curriculum. And then they released the updated framework. The updated framework essentially guts all the things from African-American studies that would make it African-American studies. Right. So things like Black Lives Matter, intersectionality, um, all of these different concepts, uh, critical race theory, all of these things, some of which College Board explicitly said at the at the start they were going to include. So come January 2023, all of these things have somehow been removed. Right. Fun fact, their big, their big celebration of, you know, the next phase of the pilot was at the Smithsonian African-American Museum in Washington, D.C. on February 1st, 2023. They had a party to announce the new program, right? So anyway, so January, they announced the revised curriculum. Um, I'm, I might be jumbling the order a little bit. DeSantis comes out and says there's no educational value to this program. We're not going to offer it in Florida. College board comes back out and says like, yeah, politicians don't influence what we do. We didn't change nothing because of Florida, right? Now we get the Wall Street Journal article, which is we have receipts. And, and it's also important to notice Wall Street Journal op-ed by the editorial board, notoriously conservative, right? So they have receipts of one of the scholars on the development program who basically wrote to college board and said, I told you this was going to happen. We told you that if you were going to roll this out, you needed to defend the program. And there's a beautiful line in this email, which is something like, 
the problem isn't with African-American studies. The problem with isn't the fight over African-American studies. The problem is going into battle with a weak partner, specifically calling College Board out on their weakness of standing by this curriculum, right? And so we have several emails that reveal that College Board not only kowtowed to DeSantis and the conservatives, but then they lied about it multiple times. And they went on an entire media tour all through January, lying about whether the changes were driven by Florida or not. And basically Wall Street Journal just pulled out the receipts and said, no, no, we know you lied. Here's where the professor calls you on it. And here's where Trevor Packer issued the apology for lying and not defending the program. And that's where we sit today. <laughs> lovely, lovely. It, I think to me it reinforces, and I think it's also important to note that something similar went down with the revision of AP World History. Um, it went down with the, revision of, with the revision of AP American History, where College Board announces, we're going to make these revisions. It's going to be more inclusive. It's going to tell more of the fullness of American history, good and bad. And conservatives go, oh my God, you're not saying America the beautiful. We don't like that. And College Board goes, okay, sorry, we'll fix it. And so it is part of a pattern of that organization showing a lack of fortitude, a lack of leadership, a lack of educational principles and kowtowing to, to conservatives. The only rational understanding of this is either they are cowards with no moral uprightness or they're trying to make a buck. So that's where we stand today. Well, speaking of standing today and calling out the College Board, uh, you recently in early May were a part of uh, the Freedom to Learn rally in New York City. Uh, and I believe it convened at the College Board um, headquarters. Is that correct, Akil? That is correct. Um, the African-American Policy Forum, led by Kimberly, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, um, has been very active in making sure that this, this betrayal by College Board doesn't get ignored and swept under the rug. Right? Kimberly Crenshaw is one of the leading scholars of African-American studies. Right? College Board had plenty of opportunity to not engage in this fight at this time. They were warned that this would that this would result if they launched a program and called it African American Studies. They chose to do that anyway. They chose to launch an AP program, say that it was a equivalent to an introductory college level African American Studies course, and then now they're trying to gut everything that would make it an introductory college level African American Studies course. And one of those things that they're trying to gut is the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, and so. The African-American Studies Policy Forum is being, is, has it organized around the country, multiple events to ensure that this, 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 you know, college board's actions remain in the public eye and, and pressure them to restore the course to its true educational value and to reconsider the leadership of that organization. Right? That organization has shown that uh, they have a board of trustees that's silent. They have, you know, 
David Coleman is their president who did somewhat of the same thing with the Common Core. He mm. introduced this, this curriculum that is fairly controversial nationally. It gets some blowback. He walks away. <laughs> like, like, so there's a pattern here of trying of gaining public attention for theoretically doing something that could be good, but not following it through and not being dedicated to resisting the forces that were predictably going to object to this. So as you share this with us, how can we and other listeners get involved to ensure, you know, that this is a continued herd battle, that it is public facing and that we get these changes made? So I think that the most tangible things that most educators, parents can do is participate in making your voice heard and putting pressure on those who want to silence the learning of American history in all of its fullness. And, you know, I'm not an organizer, right? I, and I think that if you, like me, are not an organizer, the way you do that is you you associate yourself, you find the organizers and you find ways in which to participate in that organization because it's the collective voice that creates the pressure. So looking at the work of AAPF, looking at you know various other organizations that are raising attention to these things. If you are an AP teacher and you were part of the pilot, right? There are definitely organizations out there that want to hear from you that will keep your name out of it so they understand internally what's going on. Right. Um, you know, it's through the 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 comments or the the work of teachers on the ground that we first learn about things like changes to curriculum. Right. Those things are not necessarily available to me. I'm not an AP teacher. I don't have access to their dashboard. Right. But someone DMs me on Twitter. I get to find out changes that are made. Right. So I think that there are lots of ways that parents and educators can communicate with those who are in public positions to put this pressure on organizations so that they can make positive change that we want. There is no easy way to transition to, to gratitude here. Um, <laughs> but there is loads of it on behalf of behalf of my co-hosts. Um, and I would go so far as to be presumptuous to say our listeners, ladies and gentlemen, I cannot thank our guest, Akil Bello enough uh, for his time. Uh, for his expertise, his humor, um, and his call to action for all of us as educators, parents, and those who just care at any way about the future of our children. Akil, thank you so much. Um, lastly, how can people continue the conversation with you, social media, what otherwise? Um, thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk about these things as scary as they sometimes are, but you know, we have to keep pushing forward. I unfortunately am far too present on Twitter. Um, you can find me by just looking up I, my name, Akil Bello. It's not, you know, I'm I'm not the one in Nigeria, so it's pretty easy to find me. Um, also, uh, you know, I'm full time at Fairtest. You can follow the work of Fairtest, um, and those are the easiest places. Obviously, I also have a blog under my own name. If you, the wonderful thing about being Akil Bello is I'm easy to find online. <laughs> so you can engage with me at any of the platforms, um, although Twitter is my big space. 
And that's where we'll find you. Akil, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been the Educate US Podcast, a production of Leon Media Network. For more on our show, visit us at leonmedianetwork.com backslash educate US.